That's what I'd like to talk about this morning. I've called it, in, in his image, bound for glory. How, did, how, did, how and why did he do that? Why did he create us to love? What, what is that about? I, um, I know you, many of you who have been in church for a long time, you've heard a lot of messages on image and the image of God. We live in a, we live in a culture that we're image conscious. We talk about body shaming, all, all these kinds of things going on. But this morning, this is sort of a reminder message. This is like the Old Testament God who says, remember, O Israel, how I brought you out of bondage. It was sort of the seminal watershed event of their culture and history. This is looking back and say, remember, people, remember, friends, that we are built, designed in his image. So point number one on the back of your bulletin is God has a design and you together are it. God has a design, and you together are it. I, um, I think about that passage in Genesis 1 where it says, God said, let us make man in our image. It's a plural statement. Let us make man, mankind, two flavors, male and female, in our image. It's the, it's the thought. I think the thought behind it is if we are in fact designed in God, God's image that we have the receptors and connectors that allow us to connect to God and connect to each other. Now, we know we have receptors and connectors in our brain and this three-pound thing that's between the five and a half inches between our ears. You know, we have neurotransmitters and synapses and electrical. You got a gazillion things going on in your head right now. Like, when is this guy going to be done? You got stuff like that going on. Your whole body is responding. You're balancing, you're writing, you're thinking. Your whole body is connected that way. But the fact is the whole body of Christ is connected that way. If, if I'm designed in God's image, perhaps I too have the desire to bring healing in some way. Perhaps my presence or my prayer will be a part of that. Maybe, not maybe, I have the capacity for compassion if I'm designed in God's image. I have creativity. If I'm designed in God, I love the first verb in scripture. In the beginning, God created. It's the Hebrew word bara, and it means to create something out of nothing. So if you're sitting here this morning and say, I'm just a nobody. I got nothing to bring to the game. I'm, I have zero to bring to the party. God is saying, hallelujah. That's what I work with right there. I'm the God who creates something out of nothing. So we are not creators of origin. We don't create something out of nothing. We create something out of something, but we have that capacity our bodies are wired to produce a whole effect and mankind is wired together in a way that reflects his image the whole effect the image of God as we'll see in just a moment is the individual but it's more than that in the New Testament we are called the body of Christ you bring this and I bring that and and so the whole reflects who God is better more completely at least than just the individual. I have a young friend, his name is Joel Schmidgall. Joel, when he was 21, was an aide to me in Washington, D.C. when we were there back in the 90s and through up until 2008. But for a year he came and was an aide to me. And now he's the executive pastor at National Community Church, which is this congregation in, in D.C. that meets in theaters, eight locations, mostly on the metro line. The median age is 28. So you got about 4,000 folks in these eight sites 
Median age is 28, and over half of them are single. I, I get to go there half a dozen times a year to speak just to get energized, just to be in the room with these people. And uh, Joel talked on this idea a few weeks ago, and he made this comment. That he was quoting somebody, but he said, God says that we're not supposed to make graven images. We're not supposed to try to make things of wood and stone that looks like God. Because people shouldn't make images of God because he has already made images of himself. They're called you. Let me say that again. We shouldn't try to make images of God because he has already created images of himself. They're called human beings. And when we're together, the impact can be overwhelming. Jesus, on his way to the cross, prays for his disciples, not that they'll win the world, but that they'll be one, that they'll love each other, they'll be together. Back in the late 90s, they had the Promise Keepers march. Some of you remember the Promise Keepers, the guys, the guys moved, started here in Colorado with Coach McCartney. And they, they had an event on the, on the Washington Mall. Hundreds of thousands of men came to this event. And I'll never forget, we lived in D.C. at the time. And I was standing over by the Children's Museum, which is about halfway down the mall. It's this red brick thing with turrets on it. And uh, they've got the jumbotrons. And the speakers are up toward the Capitol, the, the platform speakers. And one of the guys said... Why don't we all, as an act of obeisance and worship, why don't we just, all of us men, either kneel down or just lay down, belly down on the ground? And I'm standing, I'm not going to lay belly down on the ground. And I'm standing about 20 feet away from about eight bikers. They were Jesus bikers, but they were scary Jesus bikers. I'm just saying. And it was back in the day when we didn't have as many tats. They were tatted. They had piercings. They got chains hanging. I mean, it was a, I know they had crosses on the back, but they still scared me. And so they were there. And all of a sudden, I look over, and all eight guys are belly down on the ground. And I'm saying, if they can do it, I can do it. I can be a man. So I went belly down on the ground. And then we stood up, and they said, okay, all together, on the count of three, why don't we just... Why don't we shout the name? If you're from a church, why don't you shout out the name of the church you're from? So on the count of three, they're shouting, First Baptist, First Church of what's happening now, the Holy Virgin Assembly. I mean, you know, it was just this, and it was cacophony. It was just this whole thing. And then they said, on the count of three, why don't you just shout Jesus? He said, one, two, three, and hundreds of thousands, I don't know how many, 600, 700,000 men shouted Jesus at the same time. And it, it's, it's like it washed up over the Capitol and down to Foggy Bottom where the State Department is and up over the White House and up 16th Street and up to K Street where all the wealthy lobbyists hang out. And I mean, it's just this, this tremendous thing. And when the event was over, guys started walking back. Many of them had come in on the metro, and they started walking by the thousands up the street toward the, toward the metro uh, stations, and somebody started singing Amazing Grace. If you've never heard thousands of men walking up the streets in the capital of the most powerful nation in the world singing Amazing Grace, sometimes in four-part harmony, it makes whatever little hair I had stand up. It, it was a moment in time. It was a moment of, if you'll allow me, glory. We are made in his image, bound for glory. Second is, second point on the back of your bulletin is God has his claim and you uniquely are it. 
God has his design point one. You together are it. And God has his claim and you uniquely are it. If you want to get in a good discussion about anything, just try politics or money. Try those two. And in this one passage, there are these people who don't like Jesus because he has authority. He speaks with authority. He does things with authority. People are following him. And he's, he's cutting into their turf. Some of them are religious groups. Some are political. And in this passage in Matthew 22, this is what it says. Then the Pharisees, that was a conservative religious group, went and plotted how to entangle him, Jesus, in his words. And they sent their disciples. They didn't go. They sent their minions. Sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. That's a political group. So you got a conservative religious group. you got political. And they're trying to trap Jesus in his words. And they, they tee it up. They set him up this way. Teacher, we know that you're true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you don't care about anyone's opinion. For you're not swayed by appearances. They're saying you don't play favorites. So you're this a level playing field. So tell us then. What you think, this little innocuous question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, we're coming up on tax day in a couple of months here, so, you know, we teeth a little on edge, saying, oh, boy, here we go again. But here it says, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this is what philosophers call the horns of a dilemma. If he says yes, then he, he's probably not the holy one from Nazareth, and if he says no, then it's treason. So he's navigating a minefield, here. And this is one of my favorite illustrations. I've used it here several times. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? This is not baby Jesus meek and mild. This is in your face, Jesus. Okay? And then he doesn't go into a big dissertation on biblical economics. He just says one sentence. Show me a coin. Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. I have here a quarter. I've adjusted for inflation here. But a, a denarius was a penny. They brought him a penny for the temple tax. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. And I marveled when I read this, because I have no idea what that means. And it's not that I'm trying to be disrespectful to Scripture. I'm saying, what, what does that mean? And some time back, I was researching this. And the word that's used for image here is the same word. This is in Greek. The Old Testament is Hebrew. But it's the equivalent word to let us make man in our image. The word that's used here is icon. It's, it's from which we get icon, like Bono is an icon of the rock world. You know, that sort of is iconic. That's, that's where this word comes from. He says, whose image is on this? And I, just with my imagination, I think it may have gone something like this. Whose image is on this coin? Caesar's. Whose name? Your inscription, Caesar's. Fine. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. That's the only thing Caesar can put his image on, his imprint. But give to God that which is God's. You bear his imprint. You bear his image. For those of you who are younger, you don't use this phrase, but old dudes use this phrase. We say, I've got dibs on that. Dibs is a, I've got first, I've got dibs. Jesus looks at us and says, I've got dibs on you. You bear my image, your imprint. Underneath all the junk, 
underneath all the wandering off the reservation and crudding it up and seeing all this, underneath all that is my image. I have first claim on you. If he has me, he's got my pennies or my quarters or my kids or my holdings or my portfolio or my future. He's got it all if he has me. I love the story. I grew up in a pastor's home, and my dad used to tell this story. I've, I always liked it of the little boy who made himself a sailboat. And he floated it in a little pond up by his home. The creek ran out of the pond, and one day the wind came up, and the boat got away, and it went down the creek, and the little guy wasn't fast enough to grab it, and he lost it. Sometime later, he was in town with his parents walking down the street, and he looked in the store window of a pawn shop. And there in the window was his boat. And he ran into the store and said, Mister, that's my boat. I need to get my boat. And the man said, Son, I, I, I don't know if it's your boat, but I know that I paid such and such for it, and it's, it's $5 if you want that boat. And the little boy was just crestfallen, but he went back to his house, and he got odd jobs and did whatever he could. I don't know how old he was, probably 9 or 10 years old. Got odd jobs, and he... And he got $5, the price of the boat, and they went back to town, and he walked into the shop, and the boat was still in the window. And when he walked in, he put up his crumpled dollar bill and some quarters and dimes and pennies, whatever he had to make $5, and he said, Mr., I'd like, I'd like the boat. The man brought the boat over, and the little boy cradled it in his arms, and he was heard to say as he walked out the door, little boat, you are mine. Once I made you, and once I bought you, you are twice mine. And God looks at us, we who bear his imprint, his image, and he says, once I made you and once I bought you, you are twice mine. And don't you ever forget it. Because I don't. This is the God who comes along and says, I have a dream. Point three, God has a dream that you should see like he sees that you should see like he sees. There's this passage, Jesus' words in Matthew, the 25th chapter. It's actually him talking about the last days, the last judgment. Listen to what he says. I'm just going to read you a couple of verses. Verse 31 of Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, there's that word, and all the angels with him when he will sit on his glorious throne, before him will be gathered all the nations... Verse 34 says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he goes on to describe the predicate or the basis by which they're going to inherit the kingdom. Listen to what it says. It's on the screen. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we, then when, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When, when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. 
He doesn't say when you did it to the poor or when you did it to all prisoners in the county jail. He says when you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me because those people look like me. Those people bear my image. The pariahs of society or the disadvantaged or the, the disconnected or the displaced, those people bear my image in the same way. I had this thought when I was preparing this that when God looks at us, he's looking at himself. It's a mirror image of who he is. You say, oh yeah, but you don't know all the stuff I've done. No, you don't, and you don't know all the stuff I've done. So we're good. You say, but I've, but I've messed up the image. Well, of course, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But when you interpose Jesus between the Father and us, He's looking through the sun at us and he sees his son. He sees his righteousness in us in some way. But as I think about this idea about what it means to be the image of God, it has practical outworkings. C.S. Lewis in his talk back in the 40s called The Weight of Glory put it this way, and many of you know this quote, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. Governments can go away like that. Cultures can go away like that. Nations can go away like that. But not the guy sitting next to you. Not that lady over there on the left. No, no. She goes on forever. Your row goes on forever. This does not mean that we are to be, oh, excuse me, but it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. He goes on in a different place to say, however we treat those people, those, those immortals, we nudge them one way or another toward horrific things or toward everlasting splendors. This does not mean we're not to be perpetually, or that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind and it is in fact the merriest kind which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. When you take people seriously, you can have fun with them. When you take people seriously, there can be healing. When you take people seriously, whole worlds can open up. I, in, in seminary and Bible college, I used to go through the text and read Jesus' words and say, now, are these allegorical? Is this metaphor? Is it, you know, those English things that we say, we, do I take this literally? Now that I'm older, now that I'm maturing quite rapidly, I don't, I don't worry about allegory or metaphor nearly as much. I just, I just want to make sure I take Jesus seriously. And he says, when you take me seriously, you take those around you seriously, and good things happen when that happens. Some years ago, I took a friend of mine who's a doctor. He's a tall, cool drink of water from Georgia, a few years older than I. He was an OBGYN from Annapolis, Maryland. We went to India together. And in Calcutta, we decided to get up one morning and go to the mother house for the Sisters of Mercy that Mother Teresa had started some years ago. And we went in at 4.30 in the morning and sat on the concrete floor with 100 novitiates, young women, young women who were going through prayers and scriptures and stuff, sat there. At the end of the time, we got up and we started toward the back, and there against the back wall of this room sat Mother Teresa in a wheelchair. So we went up and knelt beside her, and uh, we started talking to her. And my doctor friend at one point said, Mother, thank you so much for all you've done. And here's this wizened Albanian woman 
who had spent 50 years essentially of her life picking up dead and dying people off the streets of Calcutta so they could be washed up and die in some dignity. And she, was, she had these gnarled, work-hardened hands. And he said, thank you for all the work you do, mother, or for, for all that you do. And he, she just reached over and patted his hand and said, just pray that I don't get in the way of the work of God. So we're talking some more, and pretty soon my doctor friend said, thank you for all you do, mother. And she patted his hand again and said, pray that I don't get in the way of the work of God. I remember somebody asking her at one point, how can you stand to go up and go out there and pick up dying people with gangrenous limbs and people who are tubercular and just filthy? And, you know, because people in that day at that time would be conceived, born, live and die on a street corner in the city of Calcutta, which in the downtown area is 100,000 people per square mile. And her response to them was, well, when I, when I pick up a gangrenous person, that's not who I'm picking up. I'm picking up Jesus. There's something about seeing people the way God sees us that changes the whole affect of the room. The ambiance of the room changes if I see you as the image or in the image of God. So, number four, God has an intent. And the intent is that you will grow more like him. You and I will grow more like him. How do you, how do, you do that? Well, we, we know how it is physically when you're in a family. You say, look at, look at Judy. She's looking more like her mom every day. You know, you just, that's just how it is when you have the DNA. But what if you don't have the DNA? What, what if you don't have the physical DNA? How do you get to look like somebody or act like somebody? How do you get those manners? I mean, I... I know some people who have been married so long, love so well, they start looking like each other. Yeah, even their dogs look like them. It's just amazing. You know, you know this is true. That's why you laugh. I, you know, it's, that's not like in the Bible or anything. I just said that. But when you spend time with people and you respect them, you tend to pick up their mannerisms. I worked with my father-in-law, Roy Blakely, for some time. I had known him since I was 10. I didn't meet Ruth until we were 18 years old, so I didn't even know he had a daughter to marry for eight years. But then after we were married, I worked with him for about a year and a half, and I had this huge respect for him. He had a way of answering the telephone that was what I call a three-tone hello. The phone would ring, he'd pick it up, and he'd say, hello, and over time, I just acquired that. So to this day, he's been gone for 25 years. To this day, I say hello when I answered the phone. Well, a couple of years after he'd gone home to the Lord, after he died, we were visiting Ruth's mom in Modesto, California. We'd been there a while. The telephone rang. I picked it up, and I said, hello. And it was dead silent on the other end for like 20 seconds. And then my sister-in-law, Lana, said, Dick, is that you? I said, yes. She said, don't ever do that again. I said, what? She said, answer the phone like that. Just, she thought he was back. You know, I just, I, no. I, but there's something just about, there's something about being with somebody you love and respect that you acquire the mannerisms. And there's something about being face-to-face -face with the Most High God over time that enhances the image that is built in. It fuels the image that is already there. 
30 years and two weeks ago this weekend, or this week, some of you were in school watching a spectacular event. It was the 10th launch of the Space Shuttle Challenger. And um, it was January the 28th, 1986. And the crew was a unique crew because they had a, had a young mother, a school teacher from, I think, Vermont. Her name was Krista McAuliffe. And early that morning, the crew climbed on board the Challenger. They waved at the crowd or at the reporters as they went to get on the Challenger. Seven men and women going on this fantastic journey. They climbed in, strapped in. They went through the countdown procedure. They came to that three, two, one, zero blast off and they took off. They were launched into the air and 73 seconds later, this happened. In that nanosecond, seven lives shaped in the image of God were vaporized. A father came to me last night and said, you need to know something, that on that day, our two children, five and seven, came to me and said, Daddy, where did they go? And he said, on that day, those two little children decided that they would follow Jesus on that day. Ronald Reagan had the task that night of trying to explain to a stunned nation or at least give words to what happened. His speechwriter, Peggy Noonan, reached back for some language from a, wrong, from a young Royal Canadian Air Force pilot in World War II who at age 19 wrote a poem about what it was like to fly. Two months later, he died in a training mission in a Spitfire over England in 1941. But he had penned these words and she included them in Ronald Reagan's thoughts. And this is what Ronald Reagan said that night. The crew of the Space Shuttle Challenger honored us by the manner in which they lived their lives. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them this morning as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of earth and touched the face of God. That phrase, and touched the face of God, went around the world and embedded itself in people's psyches. This idea that intuitively we know something of that is true. We don't know exactly how that works. But when I listen to Paul under the anointing of the Holy Spirit and I read his words in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. The reference is to Moses who went up on the mountain, get Ten Commandments, comes down, he's been with God, and, and the glory is so strong, God will put a bag over his head, if you will. And, but the language here is that when we behold the glory of God face to face, that something changes in us. Something metamorphs, if you will. 
something happens when, when we're in that presence that happens no other way, face to face. Ruth and I got invited to Radio City Music Hall 10 years ago at Christmas. We went up from Washington, D.C. to New York on the train, and they tell the whole Christmas story at the end of it. It's really tremendous. We came back to get on the train at Penn Station, and in Penn Station, there are no seats. It, like you go to Denver to the train station, they got benches and restaurants. It's very cool. At Penn Station, there are no places to sit. You have to go to one of the little joints, if you will, one of Burger King or Pizza Hut or something. We went into Pizza Hut. We got something. We were sitting there, and an older woman walked up and said, excuse me, there are no chairs. May I sit with you? And we said, sure, absolutely. She sat down. I started asking her my standard questions. Where are you from originally? She was from Indiana. Went on to tell us she had a career in marketing, ended up as vice president of a large marketing, of a large multi-billion dollar corporation. Had retired two or three years or years earlier. And two years later, two years ago from this time we are with her, she was called out of retirement to work with a big company in New York. I said, what? what's the greatest challenge for you coming back into the workforce at your age? She was in her mid-70s at the time, I think. And, and um, she said, the greatest challenge for me is I'm sitting in my cubicle and I get an email from a person five feet away. <laughs> and I said, well, it's efficient, you know. And she said, I said, what is it? Do you, do you miss the talking? Do you miss that? She said, that's not the piece I miss. The piece I miss is the eye contact. Eye contact makes you human. Neuroscientists say that when you make eye contact with someone, that it actually physically changes the brain of each person, that somehow we're reading each other's brain. Sorry, sir, but we're reading each other right here. We're reading each other's brain. There's something about face-to-face -face that changes the person. It's like I'm sitting in my house, and we have small kids back in the day and I'm reading a newspaper and all of a sudden the newspaper comes down and two chubby hands grab my face and say, Daddy, look at me. You know, I wonder if God the Father ever wants to grab me by the face and say, Foth, look at me. I got something for you here. We need this moment together. There's something in that that is powerful. Rick Warren went on in another session to talk about habits of hope talked about scriptures and how when you're in the scriptures it changes you I, I spent the last three and a half days at convoy of hope headquarters you know one day to feed the world we do that offering once a year. and they they go in disaster relief and so forth and they interviewed me on the second day for 45 minutes and they said what do you wish you had done or known at age 25 now that you're almost 75, what do, you, what do you, and I said, I wish I had memorized more scripture when I was 25, because I had a tactile brain then. Now I have a Teflon brain. It hits, just slides right on, it goes somewhere. I don't know where it went. It's in the other room. I don't know where it went. And then he talked about prayer being this time with this face-to-face -face stuff, if you will. And he said, some people say, you know, but my stuff is so small. You know, why would I take? And, and he said this great thing. He said, everything you talk to God about is small to him. It can be the worst thing that ever happened in your life, but it's small to him because this is the God who creates something out of nothing. And you look like him. The unveiled face beholding his glory. I rushed to close. 
at the prayer breakfast a few years ago, Alison Krauss, the country singer. Some of you know that name. Alison Krauss, more Grammys than any other singer. And she sang a song to close the prayer breakfast, an old gospel song that said, Abide With Me. And she just had a guitar and a mandolin. And on the last verse, they stopped and she sang it a cappella. And when she got to the last note, she held it. And she has this unique voice and she held it. And it was like seeing your breath on a 10 below day. It just hung out there. 3,000 people in the room and you could hear a pin drop. It was like nobody wanted to breathe because it was a moment. Oh, to have moments with the most high God like that when you don't want to breathe. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says it this way. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. Old gospel song goes like this. Someday the silver cord will break, and I know more as now shall sing. But oh, the joy when I shall awake within the presence of the king. And the refrain goes, and I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace and I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace time in his presence makes the image sharper time with you with his people makes the image larger time in his service embeds the image deeper Many of you have heard me tell the story of my friend Denny, who at age 28 had a rhythmic heart failure, was brain damaged, had no memory, couldn't remember his hands were attached to his body, didn't know his wife's name, didn't know his kids, couldn't remember anything, except he could remember scripture and songs. And out of that experience 30 years ago, 40 years ago now, I had this thought that spirit, the spirit of man connecting to God is somehow deeper than the cortex of the brain. And when the cortex doesn't work right, there's still a way that God speaks to us and works in us. I told this story at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Boston 20 years ago. And uh, a young seminarian came running up to me afterwards, said, I'm an intern at a church, and they give me the grunge jobs. They sent me this week to see Mrs. Fredericks, who's in a nursing center. She lays all day. She used to be sharp, but now she's 93 and, and has dementia and stuff. She lays facing the wall, babbling nonsense syllables all day. And I tried to get her attention. I couldn't get her attention. And finally, I said, Mrs. Fredericks, I, I'm going to leave now, but I'm going to say a prayer. At which point, she turned over, he said, looked at me and said, Young man, before you pray, I'd like to say something. And she started to quote a scripture. And he said, I recognized it. It was the 119th Psalm, which is the longest psalm in the Bible. It's 276 verses. And he said, I grabbed my Bible, and she quoted it word for word all the way through. Got to the end, prayed this powerful prayer, turned over, faced the wall, and started babbling again. The spirit of man and God connecting with it is deeper than the cortex of the brain. And in the face-to-face -face moment, that somehow is wired into us in a way that changes who we are. It doesn't change him. It changes who we are and how we see ourselves. We're going to pray. And before we do that, I'd like you to still keep looking at me for just a moment. Before we do that, 
Ordinarily, I and our team, we will invite you to respond in some way, and I'm going to invite you to respond in a little different way. I'd like to give you some homework for this week. It's a one-sentence prayer that maybe each day this week, wherever you are, at school or in the car, whatever you're doing, walking, jogging, whatever, working out, this is the prayer. Lord, I want to encounter you this week. That's the prayer. I want to encounter you this week. It might be here. It might be in a prayer. It might be singing together. It might be in your car when the Spirit shows up and something happens. But that's, that's a response I'm encouraging you to give to him this week as you go, Lord, I want to encounter you this week. I want, I want some face time with you. Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for the power of your spirit at work. Thank you for the one who sits here who doesn't see himself or herself in any way looking like you. They've been, they've been gone too long and gone too far and have struggled to find a way to or back to you. But in these moments, your spirit is at work and we pray for them in particular. And for those of us who have sort of gotten used to you, help us to have a fresh experience this week in some way. We will be grateful. We stand on tiptoe to see what it is you want to do next. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.